Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime, which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zinn.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unk, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unk podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unk, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, your exercise, and medication decisions. All those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and a lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. In the last moments, the Alex Murdoch double murder trial has been put on hold and the entire courthouse has been evacuated due to a reported bomb threat. And you know when I told you I love this judge, Judge Newman? He reminds me so much of the judge that I tried cases in front of. Judge Newman, as calm as a cucumber, very quietly says, quote, ladies and gentlemen, we have to evacuate the building at this time. So we will be in recess until we discover what's going on. He says in a very calm voice and everybody gets up and walks off. Meanwhile, outside, reporters and journalists are running like crazy. But the jury has been taken out of the courthouse due to a bomb threat. Gee, I wonder who would have done that. Who would want the testimony delayed? I mean, I hope I'm right, but do we really think that there is a bomb at the Colleton County Courthouse? We'll find out. Guys, I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thanks for being with us. There is a recess and the bomb threat was timed, coincidentally, right at lunchtime. With me, an all-star panel to make sense of what has happened in the courtroom in the last couple of hours. First of all, gunshot residue has appeared on more 
of Alex Murdoch's clothes. First of all, take a listen to our cut four. Were there any uh, gunshot residue? What'd you find on the shirt? So for the white t-shirt from the particle lift that was collected from the right sleeve, right chest area, two particles characteristic of gunshot primer residue were found. And from the left sleeve, left chest area, the particle lift collected from there, one particle characteristic of gunshot primer residue were, was found. In my opinion is that that object, this t-shirt, was either in the vicinity to the discharge of a firearm or came into contact with something that had gunshot primer residue on it. Can, can you tell me, did you locate any particles and where they were on yeah. the shorts, please? Yes, sir. On the right side, right groin area, there were two particles located and confirmed. And then on the left groin area, there was one particle located and confirmed. My opinion is that, that they were these, this pair of shorts would, were either in the vicinity to the discharge of a firearm or it came in contact with something that had gunshot primer residue on it. Gunshot residue found on the clothing of Alex Murdoch. They're talking about on his shirt and his shorts. Now recall he was wearing something, wearing something completely different that afternoon at Moselle, which is their hunting lodge. Why the wardrobe change? But that said, gunshot residue is found on those clothes, the t-shirt and the shorts. With me in All-Star Panel, Irv Brandt is joining me. This guy has traveled all over the world, prosecuting cases, working on cases for the U.S. government, the Marshal Services, DOJ. He's written two books, Solo Shot, Curse of the Blue Stone, and Flying Solo, both on Amazon. Irv Brandt, that's not good. Uh, you've got gunshot residue on your shirt and your pants the night that your wife and son are gunned down? That's correct, Nancy. The defense has always said that the case is circumstantial. It's not direct evidence. And it's true, but circumstantial evidence doesn't lie. And gunshot residue on your shirt and on your shorts is devastating to the defense. I don't know how they're going to possibly counter that. I bet they'll find a way because as much H-E-double-L that I've been giving to the lead defense attorney, Hart Putlian, he's still one wily guy in the courtroom. They'll come up with something. Ted Williams joining me, everybody. You know Ted Williams, high-profile uh, defense attorney, former Washington, D.C. police detective, Fox News contributor, starred in a national TV show, Power of Attorney. Ted, thanks for being with us. Now, Ted, what do you make of this bomb threat? A bomb hasn't gone off yet, but what they did succeed in doing is delaying this testimony, Ted. You know, Nancy, it's very interesting that the um, test, the uh, bomb um, uh, scenario came into play uh, just as one of the witnesses was testifying here at noon. Uh, it seems to me that uh, there's somebody out there, somebodies who are trying to, uh, should we say, interfere in this case. Uh, I'm like you, Nancy. I like the way the judge was cool as a cucumber. I mean, the judge just said, hey, look, you know, let's stop here. And then he announced that there had to be an evacuation of the courthouse. Uh, that's very interesting that it happened at this immediate time. Uh, maybe they'll be able to ferret it out where that uh, uh, information came from. You know, I find it, uh, the timing, very unusual. Uh, guys, for those of you just joining us, we are live at the courthouse with the latest. And the latest is everybody went running. Now, the judge didn't run. I can guarantee you that. 
that judge uh, calm, cool, collected, dignified, hardline, I guarantee you he walked out with poise, as did his whole staff. Now, as far as everybody else, it was nothing but tail hole and elbows. That's all you could see. Uh, but I'm looking at the timing, the timing. Why now? Why right now at this juncture of the trial does somebody call in a bomb threat? That said, back to you, Ted Williams. Now, we know I'm going to take this, everything you say, with a box of salt because you are a veteran defense attorney as well as a former cop. But, you know, when gunshot residue turns up on the clothes you're wearing the night your wife and son are shot dead, it's not a good look, Ted. Well, Nancy, you're absolutely right. It's not a good look, but there's always a defense for it, I believe. And I uh -oh, think that here we you go. may hear... <laughs> you may hear at some stage that, hey, having guns and shooting guns at Moselle is something that was always done there. And that there and the problem with the gunshot uh, with the residue, the gunshot uh, residue, is that they are not able to say specifically when that uh, residue uh, was uh, uh, got on those clothes. So it could have been that night, it could have been later, it could have been uh, two days before. So uh, that is certainly something that is out there and I don't think it's just clearly uh, explanatory under the circumstances here. Hey Nancy, can I interject well, about this? Is this Dr. Bethany? Dr. Yes. Bethany, now I know that you know, we all agree on the panel, you know more than all of us put together, but I didn't know that gunshot residue was part of your training as a Beverly Hills psychoanalyst. <laughs> well, but what Hit is me. part of my training is that he was struggling with opioid addiction, or maybe he wasn't struggling, maybe he loved his opioid addiction, but when you are an addict like that, you are messy. And uh, I think a lot of people will find it difficult to believe that if he did commit this crime, he would be so messy as to uh, wear his own clothing, uh, have the gunshot residue on it, you know, leave an obvious trail behind him. But opioid abuse lowers your connection to reality and it reduces your connection and attachment to everyone around you. So somebody struggling with opioid addiction like this would not feel the love towards his wife and son that he once did. Now, remember, Alex Murdoch, he pulled a lot of people into his web. If you listen to the trial testimony yesterday and today, Jeannie believed him for what, how many years? Annette believed him. He charmed them. He called Annette from his rehab and said, I love you. I'm so, so just sorry for everything I've done. So the fact that he pulls so many people into his orbit until they until they, they have a dawning of consciousness that he's committing crimes, means that whoever planned that bomb threat was also one of many people who got pulled into his orbit. And that's going to be an interesting thing as this trial proceeds. Like, who has been conned by him? Who has been manipulated and charmed by him? And all these trolls and people out there who are now going to try to disrupt the testimony as, as the defense is examining the witnesses. Dr. Michelle Dupree also joining me. Um, I've got with me Dr. Bethany Marshall, psychoanalyst. You can find her at drbethanymarshall.com. Um, I think what Dr. Bethany just said, and I'm trying to interpret it in regular people talk, as I call it, is that if he's high as a kite, 
his love for his wife, if there is any left, and his son is out the window. He is just getting a solution to his problems. His son, Paul, caused a multi-million dollar lawsuit to be filed after against the family after he crashed a boat and a beautiful young teen girl flies off to her death. Uh, he's dead. That's going to be resolved. His wife, according to what we've been told there on the ground, was looking at divorce attorneys, which means forensic accounting, which means she's going to find out he's been snorting up or doping up all the money. Uh, she's dead. So that's solved. When you're high as a kite on opioids, you're not thinking rationally. I think is what Dr. Bethany just said. In a yes, no, Dr. Bethany, is that what you just said? Yes. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen Nicotine Pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen Nicotine Pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Dr. Michelle Dupree. I'm leaving our other gunshot residue expert, psychoanalyst from Beverly Hills, Dr. Bethany Marshall, to go to Dr. Michelle Dupree. And let me just tell you that in addition to being a former detective, she is a pathologist, she is a medical examiner, and she's the author of Homicide Investigation Field Guide, which is some seriously good reading. Um, Dr. Dupree. You know I said gunshot residue GSR is found on his shirt and his pants, his second wardrobe for that evening. It's also found on his hands. 
It's on his hands, Dr. Dupree. You know what that means? Well, Nancy, remember that he went to the house to get a gun after he had called the police. So he, he did have a gun in his hand that night. He could get gunshot residue on his clothing from that. Well, wait a minute. Would you repeat that one more time? What did you say about gunshot residue? So I said that he went to the house. He told the 911 operator and law enforcement that he was going to the house to get a gun, which he did. And when police arrived, a gun was leaning up against, I believe it was his car. So he did handle a gun that night. It is possible to get gunshot residue from handling the gun that night. I believe that perhaps he got it on that t-shirt and clothing because he may have been wearing it when he, before he changed clothes. And the clothes that he was wearing when he allegedly shot them got gunshot residue on the t-shirt. Okay. Ted Williams, we didn't have to look far, did we? There's your answer right there. He should say, yes, I'm not even contesting this. I had gunshot residue on my hands because when I found my wife and son shot dead, I grabbed a gun because I was afraid the perp could still be there. There you go. You were right, Ted Williams. And it pains me to say that, but it's true. You are absolutely right. They've, they're going to have uh, an excuse handed to them on a silver platter. No, on a Christmas tree, as my father used to say. There's the answer, Ted. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, that could very well be one of the answers. And I think uh, when you looked at uh, Megan Fletcher, who testified, she was the gunshot residue expert. She clearly said that it, while she found it on the jacket, while she found it in the area of some of his underwear, uh, that uh, she could not say when it got there. And that's the problem that the government has. It, sh it can show that uh, this residue was there, but when was it put there? When, uh, how did it get there? Mm -hmm. And there are all explanations mm -hmm. here. Mm -mm. No, no, no. Ted, disagree. I'll tell you why. Gunshot residue, which I've mentioned, is just like baby powder. You're not going to have gunshot powder residue on your underwear for very long. Because when you take down your pants, you're going to lose that GSR. I mean, all you got to do is that to get rid of gunshot residue, Ted. And I mean, it's there for a very short period of time. That's why, as I mentioned yesterday, we would never, absolutely never let a defendant go to the bathroom on a crime scene because all you have to do is wash your hands and the GSR is gone. So the fact that you said GSR is on his underwear, you have to kind of figure out how did that happen? And it must have just happened because it would have been gone if he had dropped his drawers to go to the bathroom or for any other reason, Ted. Well, but Nancy, if you were testifying in this case, I think that would come across credibly. But just uh, think about it. Megan Fletcher testified. Everything that you've just said here, which is rational and logical, or she did not testify to. So that, what you're saying is not in evidence, so it's not part of the case, unfortunately. And I think that maybe down the road, 
they may very well be able to bring in another expert that can connect these dots. But until these dots, dots are connected, uh, it's out there and it's out there that this residue was found and that she cannot say when it was uh, uh, placed there. That's really okay, an excellent guys, point. Uh, and the prosecution ahead. really needs to make a case for asking how easy is it to get rid of gunshot residue and let the jury understand that it's fairly easy. I'm, uh, my phone is blowing up right now uh, because I'm getting messages from people in, that were inside the courtroom telling me that right now everyone is waiting for dogs to come to the courthouse and make a sweep of the courthouse looking for a potential bomb. That's what's going on at the courthouse right now. Uh, while we wait to find out what exactly, if anything, is found, I want to focus on what happened in the courtroom. Why would someone hypothetically want to stop the testimony in its tracks about this gunshot residue um, Let's take a listen to more. It's an hour cut five about the gunshot residue found all over Alex Murdoch's clothes and that raincoat. Listen. After your examination, what were your results? Particles characteristic of gunshot primer residue were also found on the interior of this jacket. Was there a lot of gunshot primer residue inside the inside of the jacket? I would say there were a significant, num significant number of particles uh, of particles characteristic of gunshot primer residue on the inside of this jacket, yes. How many did you determine? I'd, I confirmed 38 particles characteristic. There were significantly more particles uh, were listed as candidate features containing the elements lead, barium, and antimony. I had to make an analyst decision based on my experience to stop at the number that I did. There was a possibility that there would have been more on it. But you found 38. I confirmed 38. Okay, more about the gunshot residue. Guys, uh, it seems as if the state is building up to a climax. And I want to go back to you, Ted Williams, um, former Washington, D.C. cop, defense attorney, I either, well, I like to both ways, Ted. I like to start the case with a bang, like maybe putting up the medical examiner right up front. And I like to end it with a bang. So do you get the sense, Ted, that the state is working up to the zenith, the culmination of their case, which I believe may very well be Curtis Eddie Smith? cousin Eddie that reportedly took a shot at Murdoch to get life insurance policy proceeds. What do you make of that? Well, you know, uh, that's an, it's interesting as to where the case is going. Uh, Nancy, I got to tell you, I, I see a circumstantial evidence case here, but it seems to be somewhat of a rambling discard of a case. I mean, I, I'm deeply concerned here that you would even allow, by the way, this financial evidence to come in. I think it's substantially more prejudicial and probative. And I think the, the state now, is right now is just ramp Can I say, Ted, Ted, you know what? Yes. Did somebody ask you about the financial evidence? Because I know what you're doing. You're dodging the question. And typically, I think you'd be right. The financial evidence could not come in because it would be deemed more prejudicial than probative. In other words, it would hurt his reputation 
more than it would prove anything. That's what probative means. But under the law, if a prior bad act goes to course of conduct, scheme, motive, frame of mind, it comes in. Boo-hoo. It came in. It came in to show motive. His world was spinning out, Ted, over the money. Over the money he spent on. It's really hard for me to believe he spent all that money on dope. That said, it's motive evidence. But do you believe they're working up to Curtis Smith? I think they're working up to somebody or something. And I don't know where they're going right now with their case. Because as I've said, it seems like it's really uh, 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 whatever we can throw at the wall and hope that it will stick. Uh, some of the evidence that they put in, like you said, th this gun residue, that's very important. We know that the night of this incident that when Alex went to his mother's home, we have a caregiver there saying that he had a uh, uh, blue top like matter that he had with him and that he had gone upstairs with him. It is believed that this was this blue poncho that had some of the residue on it. But again, we don't know where the government is going because they seem to be just rambling. And I'm, I'm, I'm really not uh, encouraged with the case that the government is putting rambling. They don't seem to know or how to put this case on. They put on some witnesses and then they go back to the financial records. Now they are looking at someone to talk about more of the financial records. And, and I got to tell you, this is not the way I would have put on this case. I agree with you. I think putting the medical examiner on, number one, and having them to explain what took place there is significant and important. And on the end, I'm hoping that they have this witness that just blows this case out of the water, but I'm not sure about that, Nancy. Hey, Nancy, can I make a comment you know, about the, the financials? Ted, uh, uh, yeah, hold on. Hold on. I want to say something to Ted Williams. Ted Williams, now I know that you're a high-profile defense lawyer, but I, why are you saying all this? Do you, uh, you think Alex Murdoch and Hart Pullian are going to take you out to a steak dinner after the trial? Because everything that you just said, well, almost everything, they're not rambling. The state is not rambling. Now, granted, granted, there is a grain of truth in what you just said. The st state's witnesses have rambled on a tiny bit. I will concede that. But I don't think the state is rambling. Why did you say that? Well, I, I don't think it's, uh, and let me back off a little bit here. I don't think it's so much the state. I think it's some of the witnesses that they're putting on. Uh, but I, I would hope that they have that one witness that's going to blow this out because clearly, as your first guest said, yeah. and I do agree with him, this is purely a circumstantial evidence case. Okay, again, I, and I, I think I hear Dr. Dupree or Dr. <laughs> Bethany jumping in, but Ted Williams, <laughs> just a couple of quick lightning round questions, yes, no. Isn't sure. it true that under the law, the black and white letter of the law, that circumstantial evidence is deemed as powerful as direct evidence? Isn't that true? Absolutely. According to the way it's used, absolutely. So, bottom line, when you say it's just a circumstantial case, that means nothing to me. I love circumstantial cases. I like them better than direct cases. This evidence, I mean, when Curtis Eddie Smith takes the stand, 
and says what I think he's going to say, there's going to be another bomb threat because I think Murdoch is going to threaten to fire Hartpoolian when his cousin Eddie spills everything. Okay, I'm hearing in my ear, is it Dr. Dupree or Dr. Bethany that wants in? I have a quick it's comment about the, about the circumstantial evidence. And that is that I think okay. it's important, not just because his world was spinning out of control, um, but there's a saying in my field with sociopaths, and that is death before dishonor. And what that means is if their loved ones are about to see them in a negative light, if they're about to be humiliated, if they're about to lose um, respect in the eyes of somebody important to them, they would rather kill that person than be seen in a diminished light. So I see the possibility that he murdered his wife and son, not so much uh, because of the fact that all of his financial misdeeds would be exposed, say, th you know, through some uh, divorce proceeding or something like that, but that they would see that he had been supporting them off of stolen gains for all of these years. So hey. the whole raison d'etre, yes. Okay, now you're not just using psychological terms. You threw some French at me. Raison d'etre, reason for living. Okay, I have managed to pick that much up, but I'm getting... Uh, tons of questions on social media and one is for you dr bethany what would the effect of a bomb threat be on a jury well see i think that's a very good question because remember after the after the murder of maggie and paul was revealed to the staff at the law firm they became very paranoid remember they were looking out the windows and they were saying to the attorneys and especially to alec murdoch oh i see a white car or you better not leave leave um for home now because you know somebody might be coming to get you so there was this general paranoia uh, that there was a killer on the loose, not that there was per potentially a killer within the law firm. And I think that paranoia could spread to the jury that if they think truthfully, if they assess the situation accurately, are they going to receive some threat when this trial is over? So, it, you know, when we are threatened and we're uh, we feel in danger and the amygdala, the fight or flight gets activated. We can't think clearly. So this is really going to affect um, the jurors assessment and they need to be reassured not only that they are safe, that potentially they have some protection after this trial wraps and also treatment for potential trauma for, from everything they're seeing and hearing. Dr. Michelle Dupree joining me, forensic pathologist, medical examiner, former detective, author, what were you saying, Dr. Michelle? Well, I wanted to go back to the circumstantial evidence and to this gunshot residue. Circumstantial evidence, Nancy, I totally agree with you. I love circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is physical evidence, and physical evidence doesn't lie. Finding this gunshot residue, which is the circumstantial evidence, I mean, tells us a lot, I think. You know, Alex handled a gun that night. Okay, that's fine, but where is this gunshot residue found on his person and it's found in places that normally simply handling a gun you're probably not going to find and I think that's a question we need to ask okay wait a minute I like what you're saying where could you explain that in um, let's just say illustrative terms okay so I can understand you know like a parable don't just tell me religion give me a story 
like, you know, the prodigal son or the woman at the well. I understand that. Now, what are you talking about that the gunshot residue was in a place that indicates he shot a gun versus had just picked up a gun out of fear? I believe so, because if we look back at the testimony, we see that gunshot residue was found on the left and the right sleeve, okay, but it was also found on, her sh on his shorts in the left and right groin area. If you simply hold a gun, okay, it's going to be in a certain place. If you're firing that gun, it's going to be up near the collar, and that is where some of this gunshot residue was actually found. Just holding it or carrying it to your car, I don't believe it's likely to be found in those places. Guys. So much is happening in the courtroom right now. We're still waiting for SLED to bring dogs. They, they may already be there um, to scan the building to find out if this bomb threat is real. Is it to disrupt the testimony, this particular testimony? Is it real? Or is it simply to delay the trial? And who, if anyone, would that benefit? Is it meant to scare jurors? Is it meant to scare witnesses or the judge? Guys, while we're trying to figure that out, another major development in the courtroom today, yet another witness identifies the voice of Alex Murdoch in the kennel just before the shootings. Take a listen to our cut, 11. Do you recognize any voice in that video? I do. I hear three voices. And tell me who you hear. I hear Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alec Murdoch. And how sure are you? I'm 100% sure. Christine in our New York control room uh, running the show right now. Christine, I know it's not on our list, but could you possibly pull up the video that goes with that sound? Everybody, I know you, Legal Eagle, saw it just like we did in the courtroom. The video where Paul Murdoch now dead. Oh, there it is. That was quick. See, Paul Murdoch has his friend's dog over. The friend is worried about an ailment. Something to do with the dog's tail. The dog's name is Cash. So he's trying to get a video and a steal of the dog's tail that they're going to send to a lady veterinarian that they know. In the background, you can hear a lot of sound. And it purports to be, according to the state, Paul, now murdered, Maggie, now murdered, and lo and behold, just before the murders, the voice of Alex Murdoch. Hey, Christine, tell me when you have that where we can hear it as well. Um, in the meantime, you hear one person identifying that voice. This is now the third person that identifies that voice as being Alex Murdoch on the scene of the murders in the kennel where the murders took place just before, like minutes before the murders occurred. And that's not the only one. Take a listen to our cut one. I want you to listen to it and tell me if you recognize any voices on this video, please. Quick, Cash. Quick. Come here. Come here, Cash. Come here. 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 Come here.
bottle. There's a kitty. There's a chicken. Did you recognize any voices on that video? The three voices on that video are the voices of Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alec Murdoch. And how sure are you? I'm 100% sure. So that gives me now the friend, Rogie, Rogan Gibson, I believe was his last name, Rogan's friend IDs at 100%. Then you've got um, Cosby and you've got Annette Griswold. That's four people stating that that is Alex Murdoch's voice. And this is, I would say, within in 30 minutes of the killing or less. Uh, we believe that, let me get out my little trial notebook they gave me when I went into the courtroom. So You'd have to carry this and instead of a phone. It says, you've entered the no phone zone. Hashtag leave it at home. I narrowed it down, guys. Believe it or not, after days of testimony, we'll find out if the prosecution uses my timeline or not, but down to an eight-second uh, space where I believe the murders occurred. And I'll tell you how I came up with that. I came up with it because this is the time that Maggie had just gotten... Uh, Christine, did you say we do have the video? Oh, great. Let's play that while I find this in my trial notebook. Let's see the video that they were just looking at. Get back. Get back. Quit, Cash. Come on. Quit. Come here. Come here, Cash. Post it. Get it. Hey, he's got a bird in his mouth. Bubba. Hey, Bubba. That's a guinea. This is a chicken. Come here, Bubba. Come here, Cash. Come Quick. How many times do you think that jury has seen that? I mean, you know, Ted Williams, defense attorney, joining us. That's pretty good evidence. You're talking about how you don't view circumstantial evidence as being as powerful as direct evidence. There you've got Alex Murdoch, the defendant, at the location of the murder in the kennel, the dog kennel, with the two victims just before the murders. What are they going to do with that, Ted? Nancy, that is damning evidence. That is direct damning evidence as far as I'm concerned in this case. We know that that evidence was around 8.44 that night. And that was a time that Alex has told investigators that he never, never was around that Kimmel area. And this evidence, this puts him directly there at 8.44. We know that he told his friend Cosby that he went to sleep on the couch and that at 9 o'clock he left and he went to go to his mother's home. But he was never at that kennel. And this is the kind of evidence that could uh, get a guilty verdict against this man because this and every one of the witnesses, Nancy, has said 100% they recognize his voice it, on, on that video. 
That is damning, and that is the best evidence, I think, that the prosecution got, and they need to continue to drive that, 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 that uh, video with any and every witness who can say that they can identify Paul's voice, Maggie's voice, and Alex's voice, that Alex is there 100% they can identify it. That's, that's damning. Ted Williams, have you ever considered public speaking? Because, man, you can lay it on. I mean, that was a heck of a sermon right there. Uh, that said, I found it. I had to, you, okay, I think I'm conceding what you said earlier, that some of the state's witnesses were meandering. It took me like 34 pages before I finally found my chart. Listen to this, guys. <laughs> After all the testimony for days, I came down with one block. Murders occur, according to me, between 849.27 p.m. and 849.27. 35 p.m. Why? Because Maggie gets a text that she reads at 849.27. That's where I'm getting that. She was still reading and responding to texts and, and, and whatever she was getting on her phone, phone calls and all that. Up to 849.27, she opened up a group text about Mr. Randolph being ill, Murdoch's dad. At 849.27, 35, a message and call from the friend Rogan, Rogie Gibson, 849.35, was never read. Paul had been responding back and forth to Rogie about the picture. Okay, do a still. Don't do the video. He's moving too much. Make him be still. They're going back and forth and back and forth about the dog. And then suddenly, 849.35, Paul's phone goes dead. No more texts, no more phone calls, no more Snapchats, nothing. She answers the call, 849.27. His phone goes cold, 849.35. And this video is placing him there just minutes before all this happens. Okay, what about that, Dr. Bethany Marshall? Well, my thought, and I think this is going to be in the jury's mind, why the dog kennels? If he did it, it seems like he's actually uh, picking a burial site or a site to commit the crime away from the house, away from his precious furniture, you know, in an area where uh, it's sort of barren, the dogs are kept. It shows utter disregard and disrespect for his wife and son. Yes, we have the timeline Yes, it's very damning, but as a psychoanalyst, I see a whole nother area where when there is a planned targeted murder or attack, the perpetrator usually prepares like a dump site or a site to commit the crime. And it's almost like he's romancing that <coughs> site, like a drug addict would romance a pharmacy, like an alcoholic would maybe romance, you know, a bar, that he is sort of swirling around that site until he gets up the courage to do it. And remember, this is Paul Murdoch's uh, MO. I mean, I know he's on trial and we ha he hasn't been convicted, but he would always wait to the last minute 
with Jeannie, um, with Annette. He would just blow in at 10 to 5, ask them to write out a check, throw the office into chaos, and then get them to do it before anyone could respond. So I think it's the same MO is just sort of, you know, taking photos, a lot of chaos, working up his courage, and then bam, the, the ill deed gets done. You know, speaking of chaos and the storm that seemed to be swirling around Murdoch at all times, would you say, Dr. Bethany Marshall, that that is an indicator of drug abuse? Yes. I would think his de decreasing attachment to the people around him, the sloppiness that Jeannie, the CFO, referred to, that he was very slick with his crimes, and then all of a sudden he got more sloppy. The fact that he left his keys in his car, um, he wouldn't, would often just not even show up to work. You know, all of this, I think that the, the planting of the tree while Paul is Snapchatting, it shows a very confused mind. This is not somebody who plans a homicide as if somebody else had done it. He is very sloppy. And, and you know, even, I know I'm, I'm going all different directions with this, but I think it's because his mind went all different directions. So there's so many things to talk about. You think about the coat that had the gun residue on it, then it's at his mother's house who has Alzheimer's, it's, it's hastily folded, it's stuffed in a closet. This is not somebody who's thinking anything out at all. There's a high degree of impulsivity, which we also know is associated with right. opioid abuse. Well, it's interesting that you're saying that because Alex Murdoch's paralegal described him as, quote, the Tasmanian devil. And I know you all know the Looney Tunes character of the crazy Tasmanian devil. I want you to take a listen to what came out in the courtroom in our cut six. How was uh, the defendant um, as a boss and a lawyer? Uh, just, just what were his typical work habits and what was he like in the office? Extremely intelligent when it comes to the law. Um, I respected and admired that in him greatly. Um, he didn't keep normal hours. Um, he liked to float in later in the late morning time or early afternoon. Uh, we always had a running joke. We never knew. We knew that he might not be there all day, but he would always show up right before five o'clock when we were ready to leave. So, um, just you know, kept unset hours. Pretty. Um, I sometimes call referred to Alec as a Tasmanian devil because when he walked in, no matter what you were doing, you were started spinning because he was just coming through and you know, shouting everybody's name and ready to get work done when he was walking in the door. Yeah, I don't want a lawyer or a doctor, any of those professionals that you are trusting to take care of your business or your body or your family, showing up like the Tasmanian devil at five o'clock and barking orders. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. 
Zen Nicotine Pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen Nicotine Pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen Nicotine Pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at zen.com. That's zyn.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Another very unusual thing happened, as you will recall, it seems like a fleet of lawyers suddenly showed up at Moselle, the hunting lodge, at the time of the murders. Now, how in the hay did that happen? I want you to take a listen to our cut two. This is Ronnie Crosby on the stand about what he saw at the hunting lodge known as Moselle the night that Maggie and Paul were gunned down dead in the dog kennel. Listen. Do you remember June 7th, 2021? I do. Did you see Alec earlier that day? I saw him later that night, yes. Uh, sometime around 11 p.m. My wife got a phone call. I don't remember his exact words, but it, it, he, he, it was something about Maggie and Paul being shot. I got in my vehicle and, and started headed to Moselle. I'm confident that my partner Mark Ball was already there. Um, Alec was there. Did you have conversations with the defendant the next day? Yes. And what did Alec tell you about his activities that night? That Maggie and Paul uh, went to went outside and, 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 and to the dog kennels and that he sat on the couch and, and, and fell asleep. And then around 9 o'clock he uh, woke up. He went to uh, back to Barnville to Almeida to uh, check on his mother. And that goes, in, uh, that is in direct contradiction to him being at the dog kennels, which we see in the Snapchat. That's also what he told police that he was never at the kennel. Guys, got an update for you from the courthouse. A Colton County Sheriff's Office deputy was seen sprinting across the grounds of the Colton County Courthouse, panicking his voice, yelling for everyone to clear the area. One person that made it out safe and sound immediately is Alex Murdoch. He was driven out in a large black van. Uh, it's been confirmed that there was a bomb threat. Of course, the Colton County Sheriff sent that out a little while ago. And it's been said that law enforcement have not only evacuated the courthouse, but the entire block of all the reporters and public spectators that were around the courthouse. There's a heavy police presence. Law enforcement have formed a perimeter around the courthouse square. 
Attendees exited the building from the front, sweeping stairs, the ones not normally used by the public. So that confirms everything, all the emails and texts I'm getting from people at the courthouse. There was a bomb threat. Wow. <clears throat> I wonder who engineered that. That said, let's talk about what happened in the courtroom. Let's talk about what we are hearing. Straight back out to our friend, Dr. Michelle Dupree, pathologist, medical examiner, detective, and author. What do you make of what you're hearing now about all these people being there at the hunting lodge the night of the murders? Nancy, this is not the way to handle a crime scene. You, again, you don't want a lot of people around. You want to separate any possible or potential witnesses. And you don't want a mass of people tracking through what might potentially be evidence. So this really wasn't a secure scene at that time. But I'd like to go back to one other thing. And I agree with Dr. Bethany when she was talking about some of his erratic behavior. But go back to the night when he was actually interviewed, the night of the murders. To me, Alex was not erratic. He was rather calm. He, he seemed almost calculating. He thought about everything that he was about to say before he said it. You know, I'm thinking about his behavior to Irv Brandt joining me, um, world-renowned, travels all over the country. He traveled for the U.S. Marshal Service, for DOJ, International Affairs, representing our country in prosecutions all around the world. I'd like to hear your critique of the evidence as we know it so far. And what do you make of the bomb threat? Well, let me start with the bomb threat first. What you said uh, about seeing a deputy sprinting away and possibly having panic in his voice is indicative of someone finding a suspicious package. Uh, to get a threat phoned in is one thing, then you do a search of the building is another thing. But to start evacuating a block around the courthouse, not just evacuating the courthouse, but evacuating the people from around the courthouse, uh, suggests to me that they may have found either a device or something, a suspicious package that may contain a device. You know what, let me tell you what um, my producer Kelly has come up with. The bomb threat came in right before the testimony of a sled computer crimes agent, Brian Hudak. Right before a computer crimes agent, Brian Hudak. It just makes me wonder, what is Hudak going to say? Ted Williams joining me, uh, Fox contributor, high-profile defense attorney, former D.C. cop. Ted, the bomb threat comes in right before a computer crimes expert is going to testify. And I don't mean a theoretical expert that knows all about computers. I mean somebody that tapped into Murdoch's, probably his phones and his computers. Rut row! <laughs> you know, Nancy, you're absolutely right. That is very suspicious. Hudak is definitely going to be able to supply some kind of evidence and show a nexus between the phones and the time of uh, when certain things happen there on that scene, I believe. And I believe that it is suspicious that you would get this bomb threat at this immediate time. But I also believe your uh, guest just prior to me, and that is that 
uh, normally when there's a bomb scare, they, yeah, they will clear the courthouse and that kind of thing. But the fact that you have a deputy running across the uh, courthouse area there, it leads me to believe that there may be more to this than uh, we know at this immediate time. Uh, so it's interesting. I think that we should pay a lot of attention to the testimony of this SLED uh, agent that's about to testify. I think that very well may be something that ties uh, Alex closer to that crime scene uh, on the night of uh, these, these murders. We have been hearing that the, you're seeing footage right there of sheriffs converging on the Colleton County Courthouse. Um, as a bomb threat is ferreted out, and that takes a while. I, you know, I, they may sweep it and find nothing. I mean, I believe completely in uh, bomb detection dogs. They're as powerful or more so than cadaver and drug dogs. Um, so what is happening in the courtroom? Why did it have to be disrupted right now? Is it to take the jury's mind off something? Is it a real bomb threat? Is it to impede progress of the trial? We are hearing the state is culminating its case. That means they're going to wrap. And then it will be showtime for the defense. Now, of course, under our Constitution, the defense does not have to present one shred, not one scintilla of evidence. It's not their burden of proof. It's all on the state to prove the case or not. The defense doesn't have to say a peep in the courtroom, but we predict that they will. So what was happening? We learned that Alex Murdoch had a complete personality change after the Mallory Beach boat incident when son Paul, now murdered, as settlement uh, conversations swirled, a hearing was set for that week, and then Paul dies by gunshot just before the case goes to trial. But we're hearing now that Alex Murdoch's entire disposition had an abrupt change, like a personality transplant after the Mallory Beach incident. Take a listen to our Cut 7. After the boat case happened, did you notice any change in the defendant's demeanor uh, around the office and about his work habits? I did. Um, he was more distant. Even when he was in the office, he was absent. It was hard to, he's always been hard to sit still and, and get answers from, and it was almost impossible for us to, to reach him. Like, even in, he was always on his phone. It was consuming his life almost. There was a couple instances where I referred to him as having his ass on his shoulders because that's how I felt. It was disrespectful of me to, to, you know, to feel that way and to say that out loud, but that's how I felt because he just wasn't his self with us anymore. He came in and it was just like, yelled our names and, and just didn't treat us the same way he did prior to the boat accident. There was a multi, multi-million dollar lawsuit filed by that teen girl, Mallory Beach's family, against the Murdochs and others for that drunken boat incident where Mallory died because of it. Millions of dollars at stake, and not only that, a forensic accountant could very well be involved. And the last thing Murdoch wanted anybody to do is look at his finances and find all that theft. I hear you laughing. There's Mallory. Oh, my stars. Look at that beautiful girl. Um, yeah, I hear you, Ted Williams. 
That's you, the last thing he wanted. Nancy, you are 100% right. Uh, his demeanor changed, not because he was concerned about Mallory and her death. He was concerned about his pocketbook. He was concerned, I believe, that he was going to be exposed as the fraud that he was. He was concerned about the exposure of the, uh, of the uh, all of the funds that he has stolen from that law firm. And I think all of those are the things things that were weighing on him. Uh, so quite naturally, uh, the finances were important and are important, but I just don't know if I would have let them in in this case to give him an appellate issue when you have other damning evidence like that video at the Kennedy. Nancy, if I could speak to motive, his personality motive. changes. Go for it, Dr. Bethany. Okay, I think prior to the boating incident, he, he could just barely handle his addiction, his theft, fueling his lavish lifestyle, fueling his drug pur purchases. He kind of had a perfect con going for a, quite a length of time, for years. Then with the Mallory Beach death, the boating, uh, his son Paul drunk driving, and this huge multi-million dollar a potential verdict being brought against him. It, it's not only that his finances would be exposed, but it placed additional pressure on the con. So let's say his drug addiction was escalating. Now he had even more bills to cover. I think his interest in his wife and his son actually lessened under the influence of, of all of these opioids that he was taking. And so the clear solution was to get them out of the way so he didn't have to pay for them anymore. It's, it's more complicated than not wanting his finances exposed is he couldn't handle the stress of all of this. And, and think about um, criminals when, they, when they're about to come to court and they have to take accountability for their actions. Do you remember Michael Ac Jackson who got the spider bite and because of that he couldn't show up to court. I mean, they, they begin yeah, to fall apart when they have to take responsibility for their actions. And I think that's what was happening. It was becoming extremely uh, chaotic, uh, disorganized. The reason he became more organized right after his son and wife were murdered is not only did he have to really focus to get himself off the hook that time, but often when people commit homicide of, of loved ones, domestic homicides, there's a relief phase afterwards. They are relieved that those people are out of the way and that clears their minds temporarily and that's what could have happened uh, to Alec Murdoch. You know, I, I was just thinking about what you're saying, Irv Brandt, and, well, everybody on this panel, we've seen murders for a lot less than this, I've seen a murder over a $5 drug debt. A murder over a $5 drug debt. And uh, the dealer had to maintain his cred, so he gunned down a young man, right in front of his mom, by the way, over a $5 drug debt. So what I'm saying is, then we're talking about millions and millions of dollars standing in the community, the whole works. And in his drug-addled mind, maybe he thought, hey, I kill Paul, no more Mallory Beach case. I kill Maggie, no more divorce. Goodbye forensic accounting. I'll keep my job, I'll make a ton of money, and Buster and I will be fine if he even thought about his son Buster. I mean, Dr. Michelle Dupree, you've seen more murders than any of us in the morgue. I mean, 
There doesn't have to be a reason for a murder, but here there's about 8 million reasons. Exactly, Nancy, you're right. And, you know, I've said it time and time again, I am continually amazed at what people who supposedly love each other do to each other. Some of the horrific acts, and I think this is just an example of that. Um, it, it's just, it's mind-blowing, really. You know, I'm wondering how the defense can counter any of this. Is there even a remote possibility, Ted Williams, that they would put Alex Murdoch on the stand? Uh, Nancy, let me try the word hell no. I, I, I'm gonna, I would be shocked if they put uh, Alex Murdoch on the stand. Uh, he would be an open target. Uh, I believe what they're going to try to do is to bring their own experts in and that they're going to try to do whatever they can to muck up the water to show that there is reasonable doubt in this case and that this case is not beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, so, so, but putting murder Alex on the stand, hell no. Alex is going to run from that stand. He's a lawyer. He's not somebody who doesn't know the way of the courtroom and court procedures. And the last thing I believe he wants to do is to be anywhere, anywhere on that stand. You're not kidding. And I, I predict he'll stand up and say, well, you know, I want to testify. I really do. But my lawyer's not letting me do it. You know, hold me back. In other words, no way am I getting on the stand and taking a grill on cross-exam. Guys, we're heading back at, to the courthouse to find out what we can about the bomb threat. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for being with us. Goodbye, friend. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, your exercise, and medication decisions. All those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and a lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.